There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. All right, welcome to the Chronic Podcast, Election Day edition, but we don't give a shit about the election. The states are three and five, and... With me to talk about it, as always, is Andrew Duke of the Saints Nation. Andrew, three and five, and we discovered something that is worse than the Saints defense, and that is the Philadelphia Eagle offensive line. Jesus Christ, they are bad. The Saints had seven sacks. If Michael Vick wouldn't have been playing, I think that it had about a dozen. They were killing the Eagles. They got turnovers. They got a defensive touchdown. Um, you know, I'll give them credit for that. I also like the fact that they ran the ball on Philadelphia. Um, but I don't think this, this defense performance, I don't think it showed me anything that's going to carry over. I just think it shows that Philadelphia was terrible, and at least the Saints defense, when they play horrible offensive lines, can dominate. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know that they dominated because – they were blitzing so much and they were kind of going all out that they were getting gashed for massive runs, you know, and anytime um, they, they over pursued and, and the running back got to the second level, it was like guaranteed eight to 20 yard runs that they were ripping almost at will. So, but, you know, look, I, I like that game plan. And I told you a while back, you know, they're so bad. I'm talking about the Saints defense that we might as well go feast or famine every play. You know, and and go for the high risk, high reward, and that's kind of what they got against um, the Eagles. But yeah, I don't think it's. I mean, as bad as their offensive line it is, and believe me, it was horrible. I, I thought Vic was absolutely atrocious in that game as well. You thought um, Vic was atrocious? Of, I thought Vic was atrocious in terms of just getting the ball out, in terms of his accuracy, and you know, anytime your line's yeah. not protecting for you, of course, it's tough to perform. But um, I, I just think he's lost a step. And I think he always had poor fundamentals, poor technique. Yeah. But now that he doesn't have that 4-2 speed, now that he doesn't have that athletic ability, I mean, still a superior athlete, but I just don't think, you know, there was a time when Vic was on the field and he was the best athlete by a factor of five, you know, over anyone else on the 53-man roster. And so um, now that the scales have kind of evened out a little bit more, I just feel like Vic is at a point now where he can't be dominant with his old skill set. And now the bad fundamentals, the bad footwork, the sloppy um, technique is really starting to to catch up with him. And so I I just think that team is a mess. And uh, offensively, the line was poor. And they have a pretty good right tackle at Harriman's. And the minute he went out, I mean, it was like a five-year-old trying to block Cam Jordan. I mean, it was a joke. Um, so, you know, hey, like you said, at least the Saints defense took advantage of it. And at least we know if they play someone horrible, they're not so inept that they can't expose that. So I see that as a positive. You know, they gave up 13 points. They got seven sacks. They got two turnovers. Those are all very positive things. 
They still gave up a huge chunk of yards. Um, so there's a long way to go, but at least we can build off this. Yeah, and I mean, they got gashed in the run game, but a lot of that, a lot of the, the, the get, like Trent Dilfer said, after the game, a lot of the gashing that Philadelphia did in the run game was Michael Vick looked at it and said, oh, the Saints are blitzing on the left side. They're overstacked. Now let's run to the right, and they got gashed. But, you know, with this defense, Steve Spagnuolo, he's the guy at the craps table. He's got to roll the dice. Um, you yeah, know, and I look, can't believe is the Eagles didn't run the football every freaking time in that game. In See, the red zone, Jesus play. Christ. Andy Reid, you are terrible. You need to go. And I don't even, you I, know. If you look at the play disparity, I think it was 41 passes to 29 runs. Yeah. And on those 29 runs, they broke 200 yards. They averaged 7.6 yards per rush. 7.6. It's like he was no They were averaging more running the football than they were passing. <laughs> it was like it was like the San Diego game all over again. It was like it was like Andy Andy Reid was like, ah, this running shit is boring getting eight yards of pop is boring i need to do something else i mean but look the saints defense what what did we say a couple of weeks ago andrew we said we just wanted to stop being the worst defense of all time or do something good in the game get off the field on third down create turnovers yeah. get sacks they didn't stop being the worst defense of all time because they still gave up 470 yards of, of offense but they created turnovers and they got sacked so that's about as good as you're going to get. That's about as good as it's going to get in 2012. So if you, if you're, if you expect better, you're, you're just wasting your breath and going in circles. They're not – we're halfway through, Andrew. They're not getting better, okay? You just need to throw things like expectations and standards out the window. Ralph, can you explain to me when these NFL coaches be- became like – 12-year-old pimpled kids with headsets playing Madden and trying to throw on every play. I I just – I don't understand how we got to this point where the Saints are literally giving up seven yards a pop against North Turner, against Andy Reid, and daring teams to run the football against them. And some of them still don't take the bait. They're like, nah, I kind of want to throw. and. I just I just don't understand when when the winning or losing is hanging in the balance mm. and your job is on line. How can you not commit to running the football when the team is giving you? They're giving it to you. I, I just to me I'm ba- and we've seen Sean Payton and Carmichael do the exact same thing. You're seeing more and more coaches around the league, and, and it's not just that. It, it's little stuff. It's fit not calling a timeout it, it, it before uh, halftime in the Denver game. It's Drew Brees running up to Vitt and telling him with two minutes left in the game how to manage the clock, and he should let it run down to one second and call a timeout. It's just I don't know what's going on here, but you look throughout the league, and and these head coaches are just missing what I feel are the most simplistic one-on-one football things. I mean, it's the same in any sport. When I play tennis, and I play some guy that has a miserable backhand, but he's got a great forehand and a great serve, do you think I'm going to repeatedly put balls to, to his forehand side? No. I'm going to keep hitting it to his backhand over and over and over, expose his weakness, because that's how you win. You identify a weakness, you find a way to give yourself an advantage, and you milk it until it runs dry. And that's in any sport, at any talent level, in any league. And I just don't understand why these coaches aren't being smarter about 
obvious X's and O's of the game. You, you run on the Saints between the outside the twenties at will, gashing them for seven to eight yards a pop. Sometimes breaking twenty to forty yard runs. You get inside the red zone, and it's like you. It's, it's almost like it's like a fantasy ploy. Yeah, you know, like, it's, I really want Vic to get a touchdown pass. I don't get it. It's almost like you, you need a coach to just to to. Like, whoever's calling plays, especially for the, when you talk about the Eagles, but... The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. I mean, if, if I was Andy Reid and he's my offensive coordinator, I was gashing the Saints for eight yards a pop. If he was throwing that much, I'd have said, look, you do not throw the ball unless we have second down and more than four. Okay. You do not throw the ball until we have a second down and more than four. Then you can throw the ball. Because if you're getting – Andrew, if you're getting eight yards a pop, why would you throw? But look, the thing about Joe Vitt and the clock you mentioned earlier, that just goes to uh, NFL coaches on game day. There's a lot of them that can't multitask. And I know that sounds crazy, but they just can't, Andrew. They, they, there's so much shit going on, and – a lot of them can't, and that's one of the things where you can point to. Sean Payton never makes that mistake. He just he doesn't. He's like Bill Belichick. Him and I think him and Bill Belichick are the best at clock game management. They just get it right. And you can and you and me can sit here and say, oh, it's simple. How can they not do it? Well, we don't have six million things going on on the sideline, you know. And I think that's that's one of those things where you can point to. Sean Payton being gone, you know, it's it's just it's just that simple. But thank God, thank God, Drew Brees is really good at it. Yeah, well, and and look, the we've talked about this before. The margin of error in the NFL is so small. The, the margin between winning and losing is so small. Yeah. That really, those little nuances are the differences between winning and losing, and they can affect the outcome of the game. And that's why it's so something so little like calling or a timeout on the right second of the clock and calling it at the right time, little things like that are, are, can be significant enough to be the deciding factor between a win and a loss. Yeah. And so now, I mean, 
you have a greater appreciation. It makes you realize, like, yes, these coaches are there. Are a lot of coaches are really talented, but yeah. if they don't get that kind of thing, ultimately, they're they're not going to be able to to succeed. And so that's what separates some of the the really great coaches, the Belichicks, the Parcells, the the you know I, I throw Sean Payton in that mix. That's what separates yeah. them from maybe like a Rex Ryan or exactly. Joe Vitt, you know, or, or or whatever. And so, I mean, it's those little things that that really. When you break it down, it comes down to a very small detail, but yeah. that's the stone that's unturned that makes the difference between good and great. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, it, it was always in the off season. It was always hard to put it into specifics what Sean Payton was going to mean, and that is one of those things. Um. The offense ran the. I want to talk about the run game. You, I think they listened to the podcast because we talked about tackle eligible. They broke it out. <laughs> um, you know, they had 140 yards on the ground. They looked good. Mark Ingram looked worthy of a number, or at least he looked like a decent NFL running back. He had maybe the best run of his Saints career, I thought. Um, I think the run game is really important for the Saints. Not because I'm one of these people where they have to have balance, have to have balance, have to have balance. I just think for the Saints, because their defense is so historically bad, Andrew, the time of possession, it used to be one of those stats with the Saints where you're like, whatever, doesn't matter. You know, we're going we're to score 35. If we have the ball for 26 minutes, whatever, it doesn't matter. I think the, the time of possession is one of those stats that kind of grows in in importance for the Saints this year because they need their defense not to be on the field. So however they get to where they win the time of possession, if it includes more balance or short passing, whatever, they need that because they need to keep their defense off the field. Well, I, yes, and it's not only that. I mean, look, in the old days, um, the old saying used to go, um, and, you know, in the old days, you know, it was, 90% running the football and not, not a lot of throwing. Um, and obviously the, the league is completely 180 since then. But in the old days, they used to say, um, and, you know, obviously this is before I was born, but, you know, th- th- there's there's two bad things that can happen if you throw the football. You know, there's only three things that can happen and two are bad. Um, so, in other words, incomplete pass, sack, or completion. And so, um, you know, that that was kind of the, the leading Mm-hmm. Champ, championing the the running game and that, you know, you run the ball and you commit to that. And so, you know, when when you run the football, and I, I'm not a firm believer in that, and certainly as a Saints fan, the Saints pass the ball well. And so they're, you yeah. know, and, and their breeze is usually highly accurate. But if you look in that game, um, when the Saints are running the football well, Drew Breeze in that game completed almost 80% of his passes. So all of a sudden you go for it. And any time a pass – falls incomplete it's a zero yard game okay and so it's important to realize that the difference between if the balance is 50 50 throws and and 20 runs but you're only completing 50 percent or 55 percent of your passes which in a lot of these losses was around where Drew Brees was his percentage of completions this year has been exceedingly low for compared to his tenure in New Orleans and so 
this this was a game where they established the running game, and on top of that, Breeze was completing a ton of his passes. And so all of a sudden, the high majority of your plays offensively are positive. Yeah. So you're getting yourself in a lot more of those third and threes, third and twos. And look at all those conversions that the Saints have because they're being so efficient with the football. And if you establish the running game, it helps you be efficient. Now, we've seen games where they've tried to run and they've gotten stuck for a yard or two. That doesn't no good either. So, I mean, I just want to be clear. If the Saints aren't effectively running the football, then it's a wash between that and an incomplete pass. But if I think the Saints' offense, when they are actually able to get good yardage, you know, so we're talking about more than four yards a carry, four and a half yards a carry, um, and Breeze is completing 70 to 80% of his passes, that's when this offense is just completely unstoppable. And I feel like they could have maybe run up some more points in this game, but in terms of the effectiveness and the efficiency, you take away those two fumbles, and they would have dropped 40 points on the Eagles. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, though, as good as the Saints offense looked, and they, I said that in my column, if not for the two fumbles, they looked like they could have scored 40. The thing is, if the Saints offense hits even a little bit of a bump, it could turn like that because their defense is so atrocious. But give their yeah. defense credit, they did hold them where it looked like Philly was really going to make that in the game, and the Saints showed a little backbone and, 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 and bucked up. Um, let's move on from the Eagles, Andrew, and talk about the whole Sean Payton fiasco with the contract. Look, I know they broke the news that his contract was voided um, and that he's going to be a free agent. Uh, after the 2012 season. The thing I want to start with is, when I worked for Buddy D, the, the main thing he showed me, and I, and I believe this, whenever you, whether you're watching sports or politics or whatever, don't listen to what people say because they're full of shit. Look at what they do and ask yourself why they're doing it. Sean Payton put a clause in his contract that he said, if Mickey Loomis is not the GM, either because he leaves, he's suspended, or he's fired, I get to leave. Okay. That, to me, is a really big deal, Andrew, because on the surface, you would think, well, Benson just made Mickey Loomis. He's going to run the Hornets, too. He's not going anywhere. Why would Sean Payton even worry about that? To me, that says to me that some, Sean Payton put that in there for a reason. There's something that he knows or thinks is going to happen that might put Mickey Loomis's job in peril. Is it the whole Vicodin medicine cabinet scandal that kind of percolates under the surface has kind of gone away. I don't know. But all I know is when people do contracts, Andrew, they don't put clauses in there for no reason. Yeah, I mean, you might be right. And look, uh, Loomis is a little bit on thin ice only because there's the Vicodin story. Um, There's Bounty Gate, of course, which, you know, he – he was suspended for, and obviously he had a role at least in the initial denial and all that stuff. And uh, obviously the wiretapping scandal, you know, and so between those three things, um, you know, obviously Benson still loves him and he's still the right-hand man. And certainly his, his uh, empire, Mickey Loomis's empire has is, is grown with his role with the Hornets now. And so he, he is very much a part of this whole Benson, um, uh, you know, sports, whatever your empire in new Orleans. But, with that being said, um, you know, there's been a, a few shady things and, you know, all, you know, all it takes is one thing to get him fired. And maybe Sean Payton knows that his hands are dirty in some way. And, you know, he's my guy. And if he, if he's gone, then, you know, some new guy 
I might not work with as well. Or, but look, I'm not I'm not so much worried about him wanting or not wanting that clause. Um, you know, I, I think him and Loomis have a really special relationship. Yeah. We know that th- those guys are attached at the hip, and I think they both feel like um, the success that that this team has been as been able to have is because of their association. Yeah. And I feel like both of them feel like they need each other. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like that's implied anyway. Like yeah. I'm here as long as Mickey's here, Mickey's here as long as Sean's here. Like I, I kind of feel like that, you know, whether it's in a contract or not. Um, but look, at the end of the day, um, I think it's important for none of us to truly be worried about this because no. I firmly believe Sean Payton will be the head coach next year and beyond. And, I, I, even if he's a free agent, the only thing that could stop this from happening is something catastrophic. Uh, Benson dies, Rita takes over. Uh, yeah. Loomis, uh, the wiretapping scandal comes back to life, and Loomis is guilty, and he gets thrown in jail. You know, I mean, it, it would have to be something just so um, catastrophic and devastating to the franchise that. Peyton would be like, well, shit, maybe I don't want to stick around for this. You know, Drew Brees has a career-ending injury. You know, if, some, if something catastrophic like those, like those things I just listed happen, I mean, you know, obviously things change and plans change. And But um, beyond something that currently we can't envision and can't predict, um, I don't see any chance that Peyton is not back. None. Yeah, it's and I also pay him whatever. Yeah, and just remember this: the 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 just the, the pure mechanics of him leaving are really really hard because he's still suspended. The Saints got the Saints can talk to him about contract, but other teams can't. So if you want to hire Sean Payton, let's take Jerry Jones for example. If he says I'm hiring Sean Payton, he decides you know what I'm, I'm done with Jason Garrett. I'm hiring Sean Payton. He's got to wait till the end of the Super Bowl. Okay, so every other team that fires their coach is probably going to have their hire. They're going to have all their staffs. Then he's got to fire Jason Garrett, hire Sean Payton, pay him an ungodly amount of money, and then Sean Payton's got to put together a staff. And let me tell you, if Sean Payton leaves the Saints, the Saints are going to say, okay, Sean, you can leave, but you can't take anybody with you because we've got them under contract, I think. They may. They may or may not, but I think a, a good number of the Saints' assistants are, are still under contract. So they'll say, you can't take them. So Sean Payton's going to have to build a staff that he doesn't want. He's not going to be able to get the guys he wants. And that makes it really hard. And who's to say Jerry Jones is going to give him the power that he has in, with the Saints? I don't think Jerry Jones would. Sean Payton gets whatever he wants with the Saints. I can guarantee you, I doubt there's been any time where Sean Payton said, I want that guy in the draft or sign that guy, keep that guy, and Mickey Loomis said no. I, I guarantee you that's rarely happened, if at all, with the Saints. No, I think I think Sean Payton is the trigger man. I think whenever he says, I want this guy, that's it. Yeah. I mean, and, and look um, – and look, um, you know, uh, this team um, with Sean Payton, you know, another thing that the Saints have going for them with, with the whole Sean Payton thing is they're not paying him for 2012, uh, Andrew. So, in effect, Tom Benson can almost include the salary that he didn't pay him for this year if he signs a new five-year deal, say Sean Payton 
he was going to make seven million. I think they said he was going to make six million this year. Tom Benson can split that up and add that into the next contract, which another team can't, because another team's got to pay Peyton and they got to pay the coach they fired. You know, so I just think yeah. it it all works in Sean Payton's favor. Uh, I mean, for this for the for the obvious thing that she's going to be back, but it's not a lock. The one team actually, Andrew, that scares the crap out of me would be not Dallas, would be San Diego. Because I could see San Diego saying, we're firing everybody. Our, our lease is up in our stadium in a year. We're going to go to L.A. And the owner could say, I want a big-time coach. Sean Payton, here's $12 million a year. Or 14 whatever. It could be ridiculous. And Sean Payton could say, I get to go to L.A. I have Phillip Rivers. He's pretty close to an elite quarterback. I can work with that. I just got divorced, so I need the money. That's the only team that really, really scares me because San Diego could maybe hand him everything he wanted. Um, yeah, but I, I still like. I, I think if anything, this year he, he's gotten closer to his family, and you know, New Orleans is a short flight from Dallas. He's got a pretty sweet deal in New Orleans, you know. And yeah, I, no, I just doesn't. don't think he's going out to the West Coast. Even I mean, you know, I, again, money talks and bullshit walks, but um, I, I just. Even with San Diego, I don't see a, a, a team that, that's completely blown up um, really attracting Sean Payton at this point, yeah. you know, because I think he's still very much a winner, and he, I don't think he wants to go to a place that, that when, when he's got Drew Brees in his prime, that, that still represents his best shot of winning a title. Um, exactly. And unless he was going to go to Denver, and Sean Fox is very secure there, or – New England, where Bill Belichick is very secure, or Green Bay, where Mike McCarthy is very secure. I mean, those are the type, the only types of places that I would be concerned he may he would want to leave the Saints to go to. Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see, but I think you're right. Now, look, the Saints, um, they're three and five. They're they're not get, get to five and five before you even talk to me about playoffs. The Kansas City game still burns the, the shit out of me. Because uh, they City... should be 4-4 four and four right now, Ralph. If they had just beaten Kansas City, they'd be 500. Yeah, and we'd be feeling it. Well, well, you know what, though? I say we'd be feeling good about it, but I really wouldn't with this defense. I'd feel like they have a shot. And look, to me, they this week against Atlanta, Andrew, um, Atlanta's eventually going to lose. Uh they're not going 16-0. And if you saw the big lead today, of all the teams that have started 8-0 since 1990, Atlanta's ranked – the guy who does the big lead, he ranked them. They're ranked the worst. The Saints were actually fourth on the list, I think. Basically, Atlanta's internal metrics um, or stats, they just don't compute. They shouldn't be 8-0. They're not elite. Um, that said, though, Roddy White and, and, and Jones, I just – Good Lord, Andrew. I don't know how the Saints are going to cover them. I, I don't know how they're going to put pressure on Matt Ryan. Um, it is a huge, huge uh, – it is a huge issue. I don't I – don't, explain to me. You're the guy that watches the film. Explain to me how they could stop the Atlanta wide receivers. <laughs> oh, man. That's a good question. I mean, look, I at least feel decent about the fact that Michael Turner is their – they're running back, and he's really slow. Um, and the Saints have had a lot of problems with speed backs um, this year, whether it's Jamal Charles, um, McCoy, um, those types of runners. So 
I, at this point, a power runner, and, and yes, their tackling's been atrocious too. But I feel like at least with a power runner, we'll be able to get to him. And then it's all about fundamentals and trying to bring him down. And so, um, you know, Lofton's a great tackler. And so at least with the running game, I feel like the Saints stand a shot of controlling the line of scrimmage a little bit. Um, vertically, uh, Patrick Robinson has just been a nightmare all year. Makes a big play in the game and deserves credit for that. And that was awesome. But uh, you know, he's just been lost in this defense all season. Um, now, Jabari Greer in coverage played really well against the Eagles, so I'm hopeful that you know, he usually gets put on Roddy White, which means we're probably stuck with Julio Jones against Patrick Robinson, and that that could be a death sentence. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, of course, the, the safeties um, have been horrible in coverage all year as well. And so, um, you know, Tony Gonzalez and, and you know, coverage over the top, um, that, that's a huge concern for me. I mean, even Harry Douglas against Corey White makes me nervous. So, um, look, at the end of the day, we know this defense is horrible. Um, they're going to have to come up with something, you know, and, and whether it's getting pressure on Ryan like they did on Vic, um, whether it's coming up with a fortunate turnover on a tip pass at the one-yard line, um, that that's the kind of stuff it's going to take because they're not just going to beat this team off the line of scrimmage. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think the formula for the Saints is um, – the fans, I think, will be super jacked. That'll give them energy. And they need one of those uh, Drew Brees 32 out of 40 for four touchdowns and eight of 10 on third down. They need one of those maestro performances from Brees. And Are you saying the Atlanta fans being jacked will help the Saints? No, I think the, the Saints fans in the Dome, it's in the Dome, right? This no, week? no, the game's in Atlanta. Oh, it's in Atlanta. I yeah. thought it was. I thought it was in the dome. Um, well, then I mean, then it then it just becomes even. Double then check. It, I'm almost positive, but double check that. I think it's. I think it's in the. I gotta pull up the schedule now. My internet's kind of, kind of slow, but I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's in the. I'm pretty sure it's in the dome because I was. I was, always. Uh, I was always trolling for tickets. Because I wanted to go to that game and I just I never could find the uh No, it's at home. It's at home. It is at home? It is it's at home, so Okay. Um uh, Yeah, um so they have a um you know that's that's a um they need that they, they the crowd will be super because to me, look, to me this is the it's a home game. This is the this is the biggest. This is the game I want more than all of them because we're not be realistic. We're not going to the playoffs. Um, and I'd love to put a beat down on Atlanta if it's possible, just because it would put something in their mind. You know, you are eight and one, but you still ain't won a playoff game. And when it really counts, even in the Saints' downest of years, when we don't have our coach, we still we still pistol whipped you. And I, I just think I'd like I'd like to plant that seed in Atlanta. Um. Well, so, I just feel like, you know, look, this is rivalry week, yeah. you know, and, and, and I I know some Saints fans don't feel this way, others do, but for me, Saints-Falcons has always been like Penn State-Ohio State, or, and, and maybe not on the national scene, obviously not on the national scene, but personally for me, that, that attachment is LSU-Alabama, it's LSU-Florida, it's it's Ohio State, Penn State, it's, it's Nebraska, Oklahoma, whatever. Whatever 
you know, matchup, you know, Manchester United against Manchester City. Whatever sport, whatever rivalry, you know, Rafael Nadal against Roger Federer. For me, the Saints and the Falcons, everything was out the window. I don't care if they're 8-0. I don't care if the Saints are 3-5. and Both records for me are 0-0, and it's just about the pride of the South, and it's about their fan base, which I hate, their stadium, which is terrible, their attendance at games, which is laughable. And, um, you know, look, I've told you this before. I would turn down 14-2 and with a Super Bowl victory if it meant two losses to the Falcons over 10-6, and losing the playoffs, but a sweep of the Falcons. Now, that's an exaggeration, maybe, yeah. but that's maybe the only condition under which – but I would rather go two two and fourteen and sweep the Falcons than seven and nine and lose and, and get swept. So um this game I think is just so important and, and, and really over the Sean Payton era, um the the Saints have always kind of been the lead dogs, but the Falcons have been always close behind and the last six years they've had a good team under Matt Ryan. Um and, and they've developed their, their team. I mean, they've gotten good, solid players. I mean, on offense Jones and White and, and Gonzalez and Turner, I mean, they've developed a really good core there. And say what you will about Matt Ryan, he's still been a pretty successful quarterback. Um, and their defense is playing well this year. But, you know, Atlanta's kind of been up and down. and They've been second fiddle to the Saints, but still pretty good. So um, this is a good rivalry with teams that have been good in the last five years. And um, so that's made, I think, the rivalry even more exciting. I feel like the Saints and the Falcons have always been um, terrible and good together. I feel like no matter what yeah. cycle you go through of terribleness or, or, or solid play, um, the Saints and Falcons kind of always go together, um, which is interesting. But, um, look, you just win the game. That's, you know, that that's all Saints fans care about. We want to beat the Falcons more than anything. And I officially declare this Saints-Falcons week, and I officially declare this I hate the Falcons week. Well, look at it. And, now it's just about being a fan. I don't even care about the X's and O's. I just want to beat Atlanta. Well, and look at this. And I've said, I think I've, I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast, but, and, and you just mentioned it. When the Saints are bad, Atlanta's bad, and vice versa. And they're good together. And look, this is the golden age of Saints football, okay, this last six going into seven years because they, you know, they, they have a Super Bowl and multiple playoff wins and all that. Andrew, it's also the golden age of Atlanta football. Now, they went to the Super Bowl way back when, but it was a, sort of a one-off with Dan Reeves. It was kind of a fluke. They went, and that was it. Um, and they didn't have su- su- sustained success. They've had it under Mike, uh, Mike you know, what's his name? Uh, Smith. Mike Smith. Mike yeah. Smith. He's the first coach to have back-to-back winning seasons as Falcons coach. So this is their golden age of football. And while the Saints have a Lombardi trophy and division titles and multiple playoff wins, Atlanta has nothing but playoff failure. Um, the Saints are the 49ers, and Atlanta is the Jim Morrill Saints. If, <laughs> and, you know, they can spin it any way they want, but let me tell you, I was there for those Jim, Jim Morrill playoff losses, and let me tell you, after two or three of them, you walk to the stadium, you're not excited. You have nothing but fear in your soul. Um, so... That's a big thing, and I just want to keep lording over Atlanta. Um, Andrew, I just is there? Do you did you see any any signs on film that Corey White or Hakeem 
uh, Hicks. Or, or is anybody getting any? Are you seeing? Are you seeing any fucking rays of light at all? Not overall, but just rays of light or something on these young players. Are you seeing any improvement at all? Well, Hicks, um, his snap count went down pretty significantly in that game. You know, Bunkley uh, and Ellis, who I thought both played pretty well, um, were in the game for for a lot of it. And then when Bunkley went down, um, that definitely hurt the Saints' run-stopping. And uh, Tom Johnson actually played a lot. So uh, Hicks played a little bit less than normal. um, So he didn't really get a chance to evaluate him much. But Corey White... Um, at first glance, and I, I've finished the uh, offensive grades and I posted them. Haven't finished the defensive grades. I'm um, kind of touching that stuff up tonight. But at first glance, Corey White by far had his best game as a Saint in this game. And um, um, you know he still had some mistakes, but um, he, I thought he did a very good job of being physical um, as a corner against the run and, and running up to the line of scrimmage. And sometimes he would miss tackles, but um, at the very least he would get in there, stick his neck in there, and, and get involved. Um, which is nice to see, and I thought he was pretty good in coverage. So, um, for me, Corey White kind of took a big step forward in that game against the Eagles, um, and he was one of the few guys I thought on the back end um, that performed really well. But, you know, again, the problem mostly with um, with giving up big runs, there was some very sloppy tackling, mostly from the linebackers, which is mm-hmm. um, kind of annoying. And, and Vilma – and he makes plays sometimes, but other times he just looks very slow, and I, I still think he just looks rusty, and, um, you know, he just doesn't look like the, the Thelma that we remember. But, um, but I yeah, and going back to Corey White, that was really encouraging. So hopefully he can keep that up and build off of it. Maybe so. I mean, and, and look, I, I know he's he sucked, but that's, that, that's all we've been saying. It. Look, all these young players, Corey White and Martez Wilson, I know Galette got hurt, but at the end of this year – if you're telling me, look, Corey White looks like he can be a starter or a decent nickel, he's a fifth-round pick. That's a win. I, I, I'd rather have Corey White struggling his ass off than a veteran corner that has no upside. I'm totally fine with playing the kids, uh, you know, because it, it, you know, we are where we are. Um, Andrew, I want to touch on um, – before I get your prediction on the Atlanta game this Sunday, I want to touch on LSU. Uh, as bad an LSU loss as I can remember, to me, almost worse than the national championship game because the national championship game, they just got clubbed over the head. They couldn't cross midfield. Les Miles had them completely ready to play. They were fantastic. Mettenberger played the best quarterback game an LSU quarterback's played in about five years. Um, and they couldn't close because they couldn't get off the field at the end of the game, and they couldn't get off the field. They couldn't stop the two-minute at the end of the half and the two-minute drill at the end of the game. Um, me, personally, the only coaching decision that really, really drove me fucking batty was Drew Alamal has sucked all year long kicking the ball, for anybody that knows LSU. Last year, I think he was all-conference. This year, he's like 12 or 22 kicking. Um you know, and to have him kick a 54-yard field goal right before the half, Andrew, what are you doing? I could understand if he was 20 or 20 and you're like, he's really hot. Maybe he can make it. There was no way he's making a 54-yard field goal. He never kicked one longer than 44 his whole career. That was the one decision I didn't like. The onside kick, look, it didn't go his way, 
But that's what the surprise onside kick is. It's a surprise. It either is great, like Sean Payton in the Super Bowl, or it blows up in your face. It's a risk. The Wildcat with where they've been running that, that's been working really well for them. I didn't have a problem with that. But that kick at the end of the half was just awful. That was awful, and I also didn't like the 48-yarder or whatever it was at the end of the game because, um, you know, whether you're up six or three, I feel like a touchdown wins the game for Alabama, right? And a field goal, okay, if you're up six, then a field goal still loses it for them, so they got to go get seven. Um, but a touchdown um, wins if they're down three anyway. So, you know, and a field goal, at worst case, sends it to overtime. So – um, I would have really liked to have seen them punt in that situation, um, mostly because Alabama had no timeouts, and I'd rather see them go 99 yards or 90 yards or even 80 yards to score than 60. Um, and so I would have liked to have seen them punt in that situation too. But, yeah, you know, I, I think um, it's tough, Ralph. I mean, I, I think uh, the 54-yarder, um, you know, Alamon, I mean, I don't know what he does in practice. And I, I have a feeling that um, most of us didn't really feel very confident he could make that kick. Um, the kick was very short. Uh, Miles sees him in practice, and I don't know if he makes those kicks in practice, but um, if he's not making them in practice, he certainly has never made them in games. Um, then Miles, we seriously have to question again uh, Miles' game management and his decisions. And, um, Look, again, you know, we talk about the difference between being great and, and good, and, and I just think um, Miles, uh, that's another example of a coach um, that uh, in, cr- in critical stages uh, makes a decision and it comes back to haunt him. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. It was a gut-wrenching game. And uh, for, to see LSU do what they did to Alabama and really in the second half kick their ass, I mean, I really just felt like LSU dominated that game yeah. They controlled the line of scrimmage. They beat up Alabama. And, um, you know, going into that game, I really thought they were running into a buzzsaw. And, and so I was pleasantly surprised and optimistic. And Mettenberger played a fantastic game. And uh, it's just – it's still unbelievable that they found a way to lose that. That game felt a lot like the Chiefs game, um, you know, where a team that just got bullied and beat up um, just kind of felt like they they stole one at the end, um, and honestly, at least with the Saints, you could you could feel the tide turn, and you could feel them slowly getting bled to death. Um, Alabama, I mean, it was almost like they were losing the whole game, you know. In a basketball analogy, they just like threw a full court shot at the end, and it like swished for three points to like win them the game. I mean, it was yeah. just like, how did this happen? But I'll tell you. I knew the minute they ran that screen, uh, LSU was in a six or seven man blitz. Yeah, it's perfect. As soon call. as I saw that screen develop, I knew it was over. I knew I knew LSU had lost the game the minute I saw all those guys blitz and get in so easily and the ball get lobbed over their head for a screen pass. I was like, Saban just dialed up the perfect play call against the perfect yeah. defense, and this game is over. Yeah. So. You know, look, LSU, I, it, the one thing I will say about Alabama, they ain't the greatest college team of all time. I think Texas A&M will be able to move the ball because I think Mettenberger showed you can do business on their secondary if you can protect, and Texas A&M's got a really nice freshman quarterback. 
I just worry that there's no other team in America that has the defense that LSU has. And I think L- I think Alabama, if they play Oregon, if they play Kansas State, they'll road grade them to death. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's no. That's, I, I really feel like LSU is the last opponent on Alabama's schedule that could really stop them from you know, winning the national title. That's so. That was LSU last year. Look, if Alabama doesn't catch a break and get in the championship game, if LSU would have played Oklahoma, if they would have played Oklahoma State, they would have road graded Oklahoma State because Oklahoma State was giving up like 40 a game and LSU would have won the national championship. Everybody would have been happy. And I just feel like that was the shot. LSU had to take Alabama down. They didn't. But anyway, let's get back to to Saints Atlanta. Andrew, give me a prediction on this game and give me... One, you know, we always talk about the Saints defense. It's going to suck, but if they could do one thing well, what's one thing that they have to do to win the game on defense? And then tell me, give me your prediction. I think they just have to tackle. They have to tackle well. I think Atlanta's going to hit plays on them, um, but I think where the Saints get into a lot of trouble is the runs that are five yards, they miss a tackle, it turns into 15. Um, the passes that are 17 yards, Malcolm Jenkins misses a tackle, it turns into 35. So they just have to tackle well. Give Atlanta what they're going to get and make sure you stop the play from getting any bigger. Um, so that that's that's one thing that's been poor all season, and I'm really hoping for them to improve is the tackling. Um, so that if, if there's one thing I have to pick defensively, um, you know, it may not be sexy and, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you were hoping I would say get get all these sacks or get this big turnover, but really I, I think the Saints need to focus on fundamentals and tackling aggressively and just m- making stops. So I, that, that to me is the most important defensively. Um, but uh, as far as my prediction, you know, I, I'm kind of switching gears now that it's at home. That kind of changes everything. Um, I, I don't know why I was always assuming this game was in the Georgia Dome, but um, now that I realize it's at home, first of all, I, I realize now I have to unload my tickets, my season tickets. So um, once you get off the phone, I'm going to start working on that. Um, but um, I'm I'm going to say the Saints have some momentum here. And uh, I think for a week, the Saints defense is going to build off a decent performance and play well again because it's the Falcons. Now, I make yeah. no promises for what happens after this game because even if they get to four and five, I still feel like the season's in the can. Um, I still feel like there's some woeful defensive performances ahead of us. Um, mm-hmm. But at home against the Falcons, the Saints just have their number, and I feel like they're going to find a way. And I feel like it's going to be low scoring. It's going to surprise us. I'm saying maybe 24-21, um, which yeah. for the Saints is very low scoring. So, um, you know, I don't really trust Garrett Hartley anymore, but um, – you know, I wouldn't mind seeing Breeze um, throw a touchdown pass late to win or something like that. But I really think this one will go down to the wire. I think um, Atlanta is not as good as they pretend to be. I think the Saints will play better than they have at home uh, against a division rival. And uh, I think it will come down to overtime or, or at the end of the game in a big play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think you're I think you're right. I, I, I just – the Saints – you know, it's it's getting late early, you know, and it, if they don't get this one, they're done. You know, I mean, it's, you can, it, yeah. it's it's really, I mean, it really is over. And the, the, the thing is, though, Andrew, if they get the Atlanta game, if they get the Atlanta game and get the four and five, I think 
you're going to look at it and you're going to be like, the Saints are four and five, and oh my God, the last playoff team is five and four. Like, I I think I think we were wrong. You know, like talk about politics and projections and thinking this early. We were like, man, NFC is loaded. I think you got to get you. I think there might be a ten and six team left out. You might even have to get to eleven. I'm not looking at that, Andrew. I don't think so. Seattle's five and four. Minnesota's five and four. Tampa's four and four. I, I think nine and seven is going to get you in in the NFC that last spot. Now it's got to be the right nine. The Saints got to keep winning NFC games, but I think nine and seven will get you in and. That get you the sixth seed in the NFC. Do you disagree? No, I'm with you. I just think it's going to be tough for the Saints to pull off given their schedule. They still have Atlanta twice. They have San Fran. They have the Giants. I mean, those four games right there are brutal. And I know that Seattle, with the division they play in, Minnesota, um, you know, I, I, I just feel like some of those teams are going to have an easier time than the Saints in terms of, um, you know, cupcake, cupcake games and, you know, they still play uh, Tampa, and that'll be, um, you know, a rival potentially to make a playoff spot, and they still play the Raiders and the Panthers. So there are some games there that are within reach of winning. Um, but at the end of the day, I just feel like um, those four games in particular, um, Atlanta twice, the Giants, um, and uh, the 49ers, I mean, those are just brutal, brutal asks um, I think- for this team. I think the well, you know, we can get to we'll get to the forty nine we can get to the forty ers in a couple of weeks. I think that's the target scheme because the Giants they're kind of all over the place. They're kind of schizo. You could catch they're not consistent. San Francisco's really really consistent, and the things that San Francisco does well, the Saints have trouble with. So I think that's a horrible match, a horrible matchup for the Saints. But we'll see. Um, but yeah. Andrew. Um, hopefully the Saints will get to four and five, and we can have some more fun. Uh, be well, my friend, and we'll uh, talk to you next week. Atlanta Falcons, we baby, let's get a win. Fuck. Dirty Bird. Fuck Atlanta. That's all you need to know.